you be opening your Bibles to John chapter 6. We'll make our way over to our passage in just a few moments. But as we make our way in this world, God expects us to take advantage of the great blessings and gifts that He's given to us. Often we overlook our abilities, we look at the things that we possess or the uh, talents that we have in this life and we sometimes do not consider them to be worth much. But I think that is kind of backwards thinking. Theologian John S. Dunn tells a story of a group of sailors, Spanish explorers seeking the new world. As they made their long, arduous journey from Spain over to the continent of South America, they began to run out of supplies. One of the things they ran out of that was most important was fresh water. But as they came out of the ocean and they came into the Amazon River, the greatest river in the world that has a mouth of 202 miles across and holds 20% of the earth's fresh water. And that fresh water can be detected 200 miles out into the ocean. But the, the, the river was so large as they came into that fresh body of water, they did not recognize it as a river. To them, it just simply looked like the ocean. So as they were going along, their fresh water supply had run out, and many began to thirst to death and die, all the while they had in their hand fresh water. But they didn't recognize it for what it was. The problem was that they didn't recognize it. They didn't see it for what it was. They understood that drinking salt water was fatal and could be fatal, but they were floating in this massive body of fresh water. So often when we look at something, it doesn't mean much to us. We look at it and often we overlook it. When those sailors began their journey, they had plenty of fresh water. I imagine that their time spent was not spent in thinking about fresh water. They had all they needed. But when they began to run out and those fellow sailors around them began to lose their lives and they began to die from a lack of water, I imagine that that is just about all that was on their minds was fresh water. And I believe that can happen in our spiritual world, our spiritual lives as well. J. Hudson Taylor said this, He said, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned God to be with them. They understood they could rely upon them. Eleanor Smith, she said, it has long since come to my attention that people of accomplishment rarely sat back and let things happen to them. They went out and happened to things. That's a wonderful statement, isn't it? I want us to notice some of the things in the hands of God's people. What did Noah have in his hand? Some sort of a hammer? Some kind of material that he had gathered, but what he ultimately had in his hand was greatness. What about Moses? Moses simply had an average shepherd's rod. That's all he had. 
but with that shepherd's rod. He had greatness in his hand. What about young David? Before he became a king, he had a common sling and five smooth stones. Nothing out of the ordinary, or so it would seem. But in his hand, he, had, he held greatness. We read of a woman in the New Testament by the name of Tabitha. What did Tabitha have in her hands? Some cloth, some thread, some kind of a needle. But with that, she held greatness in her hand and she impacted the lives of so many around her. In fact, to the point that when she passed from this life, there was a great mourning because she was no longer with them. I want us to notice John chapter 6 beginning with verse number 5. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? Well, I think probably to me or to any of us in this building and to those standing around the Christ at that time, I guess five barley loaves and two little fishes just didn't seem like much. But in the hands of God, it's something great. Now we have many things within our grasp. Tonight we want to ask the question, what is in my hand? Each of us. Let's consider ourselves and let's look at the circumstances in which we live and let's ask, what is in my hand? That's the title of tonight's sermon. What is in our hands? Well, the first thing we're going to notice tonight, this is our first point, we have time in our hands at the present. Time is something that we cannot buy or sell, but time can be invested. We must invest time. Paul said this, Ephesians 5, 16 and 17. He said, Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul is guiding us in these words that he has written for our benefit. He's guiding us in how to use the fleeting moments of this life, and that's exactly what they are. When speaking of redeeming time, Paul wants us to figuratively buy it up or to save it or to rescue it from loss. That's the point that he is making, figuratively, of course. But how can we do that? How can we lose time? How is it that time escapes us? Well, how many of us just waste time? Sometimes we waste a lot of time, don't we? We're not talking about taking a break or trying to rest from from activity or something like that, but we're talking about an habitual waste of time that God has blessed us with. The Lord wants us to take advantage of the precious moments of this life and take advantage of them so that we might be blessed by serving Him appropriately. Paul told those at Rome this, Romans 6, beginning with verse 16. He said, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, 
His servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of disobedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were, were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. You see, we can serve sin unto death, we can serve unrighteousness, or we can serve God. And we can do what He's asked us to do. We may not have a lot of things materially in this life, but we have something. We've got plenty of time, don't we, to serve the Lord as long as time exists. We can surely carve out an appropriate amount of time to dedicate that to God because that's what He expects from us. We better find the time. But the fundamental truth about time is this. We just simply can't count on it. It's not reliable. We can't count on time. We don't know if it will be here tomorrow or not. We are never blessed with the opportunity to say, I'll do that tomorrow. Well, we may do it tomorrow if God blesses us with continuing time, but it's not reliable. We may or may not reach into tomorrow. Solomon, the wise man, said, Proverbs 27, 1, He said, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Well, what could a day bring forth? In our announcements, we've talked about a sister that passed from this life. We've talked about members of our own congregation whose health is in great peril. What might a day bring? Well, a day might bring death. It might bring happiness. But it's not reliable. We cannot count on it. Solomon, I don't believe, intended to for us to understand that planning for the future, planning for tomorrow is wrong. He doesn't want us to count on it. We need to do what we plan on doing now, right? That's why Paul would say, today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. We've never been granted tomorrow. But how do we properly invest the time that we've been given? I think one of the greatest examples of that is the brethren in Macedonia. In fact, Paul described what the Macedonians were doing to the brethren in Corinth to encourage them to greater service. Notice what he said, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. He said, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes... And beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. They weren't able to do much, but they did way beyond what even Paul expected from them. But they first gave themselves. They gave their time. That's how we invest our time. We may think that what we have is not much, but always remember in the hands of God it can be great. We invest time, but we also use it in other ways. Our time is used as an influence. 
We influence others with our being around them, with our interacting with them. Our time. We influence others with it. Members of the Lord's church can be a positive influence on the world or it can be a negative influence on the world. How would that be the case? What about those who who claim to be Christians yet they do not live in such a manner? People of the world see that and what do they think? Well, we have someone here that that is claiming to be Christ-like yet they live like the world. I don't know of anything the world despises more than a hypocrite. And let me tell you something, the, lo- the world loves to find them in the Lord's church. See, we don't want to do that. We want to influence properly. We need to live in such a way that people cannot legitimately speak evil of us, right? That doesn't mean we won't make mistakes. That doesn't mean that we're perfect in any way. But it means our common lifestyle is such that people cannot speak evil of us. Peter said this, 1 Peter three fifteen through 16 He said, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that, and here it is, whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ, your good lifestyle in Christ. That's the way we live, right? What's in my hand tonight? Well, I've got time. I need to invest it. I need to use it for a good influence, right? We influence our brethren also. There are those among us and we all hold this position at one time or another and I think it is a constantly moving position for us. Sometimes we're weaker than we are at others, right? Sometimes we need a little more encouragement today than I did yesterday. We need to influence our brethren. The writer of Hebrews made this statement. Hebrews 10, beginning with verse 22. He said, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. He said, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. He talks about our responsibility toward God, toward ourselves, and toward each other. That's an amazing thought that he says. We need to encourage each other. He began with telling them to draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. We have an obligation to draw nearer to God, to always be trying to improve and to grow and become more godlike every day and to mature spiritually. God has invited us. We must accept. That's our obligation because His desire is this that all should come to repentance. Second Peter three verse nine. That's our obligation to God. Then he says that we have an obligation to ourselves. Sometimes we overlook that. He said, hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. How do we do that? How do we hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, without uh, getting cold and hot and cold and hot? How do we grow into maturity? How do we do it 
by applying the apostolic doctrines to our lives, by being faithful in what is written, even when it is not enjoyable, even when it is difficult, we are obligated to ourselves to do that. Then he addressed our responsibility to each other. He commanded, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. We have a responsibility not only to obey the commandments of God set before us, but we also have to reach out to our brethren. We have to be able to encourage each other. How do we do that? Well, we're doing it right now, aren't we? We're encouraging each other. We're coming together and we're focusing on the true God of heaven and we're encouraging each other in our faith. I imagine there's some of us here tonight that probably would feel better lying in the bed at home. Maybe there's some aches and some pains. You know, our our sister Mary Kay was mentioned. I'm satisfied that she would be more comfortable at home. But you know what she decided to do? She wanted to fulfill her obligation to God. She wanted to fulfill her obligation to herself. And she wanted to fulfill her obligation to us. We have to do that. If we're absent, we're letting three areas of responsibility go by the wayside. May we all rededicate ourselves to always being present and coming together and enjoying our time together as we worship God. What's that in my hand? What is in our hand? Well, we've got time in our hand, right? We have something else. We better invest our time wisely. We better influence with it properly. But we need to take care of our talents. That's our second point. We have talents. Talents come in the form, uh, and come in many forms. One form of a talent is capability, right? Capability. We all have some sort of capability, and we can all fulfill the work of the church in some way. In some way. Now, not all of us can do the same things, but we can all do some things. Right? That's capability. Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 12, 14, beginning with verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in one body, as it hath pleased Him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And we may think that we do not have much capability. But we all have some capability. We all have something that we can contribute to the work of the church. Not everyone is an eye. Not everyone is an ear. If everyone was an ear, where would be the smelling, right? If we were all one, one uh, thing, where would be the body? But we're many, and we make up the one body. We may not think that we have much capability, but the capability that we have in the hands of God is something that is great. But there's something else that we have as far as our talents. We have capability. We have capital. We're talking about money, right? We have that. Uh, we may not have much, but what we do have, 
God expects us to take care of it properly, right? He expects us to be good stewards of it. And that includes giving to the work of the church. Often we do not look at giving, or at least I have in the past. I guess that's the better way to say it. I have not always looked at giving as an act of worship equal to the other acts of worship. And that was a mistake on my part. God has always expected His creation to give as an act of worship. We go all the way back to the garden. During the patriarchal times, God expected the firstlings of the flock. We read about Abel giving the proper sacrifice, right, in Genesis chapter 4. We move on into the Mosaic period of time and God did continue to require animal sacrifices, but then He also required tithing of everything that they possessed, a tenth of what they owned. We see that in Leviticus 27, verse 32. But now that we are living in the Christian dispensation, the time of Christ, God expects us to simply give as we've been prospered. Now that makes it a little more difficult, doesn't it, on our figuring. It's sometimes a little difficult to try to come to the proper understanding. How much should I give? Well, that's not an answer anyone can can give to another. That's something that we have to work out between us and God. And He understands. He knows what we can give. So we must give as we have been prospered. One man asked another man on one occasion, he said, what did you do this week? The man's response was very interesting. He said, well, on Monday, I did relief work down on the coast of Florida. On Tuesday, I taught in a preacher training school in the Philippines. On Wednesday, he said, I conducted Bible studies in the jungles of South America. On Friday, I visited an orphanage in India. In amazement and disbelief, the man said, Friend, even in this day of high-speed travel, there's no way you could have done all of that. Oh, the man replied, I did in fact. He said, I do it every day. You see, every Sunday I give as I've been prospered and that money goes to all those efforts. So we can, in some ways, that may be what I'm capable of doing, right? At a time in my life when perhaps I can't go to a foreign nation anymore. Perhaps I'm not able to get out and go into the community. I'm just not physically able to do it. But maybe my capability has something to do with my capital as I look at my talents. If we give in the proper way, notice the wonderful benefits that God has described to us. He says, 3 John verse 8, we become fellow helpers to the truth. We get to be laborers together with others, 1 Corinthians 3, 9 and 2 Corinthians 6, 1. When God asks this question, what is that in your hand? Or I ask myself, what is in my hand? Am I satisfied with my response? Am I looking at my response and I, and I think, well, I believe God would be happy with that? Does He appreciate what I tell Him? Or am I ashamed of the answer? Will we be remembered like the Israelites in the days of Malachi? God asked a question, Malachi 3 verse 8. He said, will a man rob God? He said, yet, but you've robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? God's reply was this, in tithes and in offerings. We can rob God, that is possible. We can rob Him of what He has prospered us. That's why we give as we've been prospered. 
What's in my hand? We need to ask that question. What do I have in my hand? I've got time while I live. I have certain talents that God has blessed me with, but there's something else we need to consider. We have timelessness at the point of our hands. Timelessness. Let's think about that. All of us are just a moment away from eternity at all times. Anything could happen. What does tomorrow bring? Well, I'm not sure. What does today bring? Beyond right now, I don't know. But I know at some point, each of us will live in eternity. And we're going to live in one of two places. We can live in pleasure in heaven, surrounding the throne of God, offering worship to Him day and night, we read in the Revelation, and how wonderful that will be. Let's notice the description of heaven once again. Heaven is described in such a way that it is without doubt the most beautiful existence that anyone could hope for. Let's notice Revelation 21, beginning with verse 1. John described in such wonderful detail the vision set before him as he looked into the, the very throne room of heaven. Now, of course, this is a figurative statement. The things described in what John saw are not actually in heaven. It's a, it's a place in the spirit realm. Nothing physical can be in heaven. But so that we might understand in some small way the wonder of heaven, he described it in terms that we can understand. He said, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What is more beautiful than that? And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them. And they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them. And be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. What is a more beautiful description in this world than being in a place where there's no tears, there's no crying, there's no pain, no more death, no sickness? And it's just as beautiful as a bride on her wedding day. That's glorious, isn't it? He went on to say this, verse 21, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold. It was as if it were transparent glass. What a beautiful statement. We should long to be there, to be in the pleasure of God living in timelessness. We ought to desire to go there. But how do we do that? We've got to be obedient, right? There is a way to get to heaven. We must be obedient to the laws of Christ and to the laws God has commanded us to adhere to. If one has not placed his belief in Christ, we're not going to be in the pleasure of heaven. If we do not place our belief in Christ, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six. If one is not repented of past sins and exactly we need to understand what repentance means right repentance isn't saying well I'm sorry 
And if I do it again, I'll ask God to forgive me. That's not true repentance. Repentance is me saying, I'm not going to participate in that any longer. I'm going to live for God. Now, does that mean someone might not slip up? No, it's not what it means. But it means we're not living in sin. And if we slip up, we ask God to forgive us. But there comes a time in this life where the slip-ups need to come fewer and further apart, right? As I grow and I mature. If we haven't made the good confession, that same one that the Ethiopian eunuch did, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We're not going to be living in pleasure and timelessness. We see that in Acts 8.37. Uh, if I fail to do that, then I'm not unto salvation. I'm not at, at the precipice of salvation Romans 10.10 What about being immersed in water? The world says that's not necessary. Well, it's necessary if we want to live in pleasure in heaven. Surrounding the throne of God, it's necessary. Why do we want to make such a big deal out of it? Why do we want to make it something that might cost someone their soul? Because it will. It'll cost us our souls if we're not immersed in water. Why? Let's ask the question, why does it matter Because I want to get to heaven. I want my sins removed, right? No sin will enter into heaven. We just read the description. There's no pain. There's no sorrow. There's no crying. What causes all of that? Sin. That's not going to be in heaven. If I'm living in sin, I won't be living in heaven. I'll be living eternally somewhere else. If we haven't done those things, we need to do that. And then what do I do after I come up out of that water? I've become a new creature. I'm walking in a new life. I live a faithful life. I continue to take care of what's in my hand. And I use it for God's benefit. We need to be faithful even unto the point of death. Revelation 2 verse 10. That's a requirement, not just a good idea. If those things are not done, As we exist in timelessness, we're not going to enjoy the pleasure of heaven. We will endure the punishment of hell. Hell is a real place. It's an actual place. But it's an actual place that was never intended to be populated with people. That was never God's intention. His intention for hell was to punish Satan and those angels who sinned against God in His rebellion. That was the whole purpose of the creation of hell. But in the judgment, those who choose to go there will hear these words from Christ, Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Never prepared for Rick. But I can go there if I choose that. I don't want the punishment of hell. I want the pleasure of heaven. But we can go there. We get there by living in sin, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. As glorious as the description of heaven is, and it is so wonderful, I love reading those words, the description of hell is as bad as heaven's is good. Christ said this, Mark 9, 43, beginning, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, 
into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. He described it as a place of outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place where the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torments, Luke 16, 23. John said it's a place of no rest, day or night, Revelation 14, 11. It is a place of hopelessness and unsatisfied desires, Luke 16, 24. Hell is a place filled with everything that we fear most. We need to understand that. Each of us will live in timelessness at some point in the future. This life will be over and we can choose between pleasure or we can choose between punishment. What's in my hands? What is in our hands? Time, talent, timelessness will be. Now what do we see in our hands? Do we see something that is to be overlooked? Something that we we do not regard as helpful in any way? Or do we see something in our hands that God can make great if we'll let Him? We need to consider that tonight. What's in my hand? Consider also, if you've never obeyed the gospel, do that tonight. Because hell is a real place just as heaven is. We want the pleasure of heaven. If you've obeyed the gospel and you've become unfaithful, make that repentance. Make that confession in whatever way is necessary. God understands if you need to come to Him privately or if you need to come publicly for some reason. But if you have need to answer this Lord's invitation, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.